You're listening to the 405 Exchange Podcast. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today's episode is with Zeke Thomas. This was one hell of a talk to have. Zeke is a DJ, a songwriter, and an activist based here in New York. He's the son of legendary basketball player Isaiah Thomas, and Zeke is also a survivor of sexual assault. Within this talk, he not only shares his experience, but also the aftermath and coming out the other side, dealing with something like that. And honestly, I truly can't thank Zeke enough for his candor and his honesty. This is definitely one of the most important talks we've ever recorded, and it's honestly a privilege to bring it to you. This is the 405 Exchange with Zeke Thomas. Enjoy. You know, it's more normal for us to do this at the end, but I'd love to start this talk with you telling us about some of the organizations and initiatives that you're currently working with. Oh, wow. Um, It's interesting because being in the sexual assault, um, sexual violence space, um, there's been a lot of organizations who have approached me about working with them, and I've worked with so many. So to narrow them down to, I guess, like, the faves would be wrong um, because I feel like you know any organization that I can lend my voice to or help raise funds or help in general just them reaching out to me to bounce ideas has been great um, I work with GLAAD a lot I work with Inside Us a lot um, those have been the two organizations that I really work with a lot but I've worked with very many from Safe Horizon um, to even just you know giving speeches um, to student organizations and colleges. I think that in a lot of spaces, especially in sexual violence, um, awareness is key. So I want to just lend my voice and talk about it as much as possible um, and really learn about it. Um, talking and doing with organizations like talk to the Jet Foundation even, and just learning about what they do, how they interact, and how they teach, and practice, and engage, um, that's been fulfilling in just learning from these pros who have done this for the past 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. Uh, you know, one of the things that I love about what you described is that it seems like you have this adverse uh, reaction to not be inward. Like, you like being uh, outward as much as you can with your experiences in your life. I'm going to touch on that a lot, for sure, in this talk. Before I do, I want to touch on something else about how we're living in this weird time where the phrase being socially conscious is almost a dirty phrase to some people. Um, it's not something that I personally get. I don't understand why some people think that might be a weird or a bad thing. But I don't want to go into that, the semantics of that. Instead, I want to go into how you as an individual are quite socially conscious and when you felt like you became aware of that within your own self. I definitely can definitely understand you know, how socially conscious is becoming a dirty word. Um, mainly just because, you know, anything that is just about giving and is just about, you know, giving a part of yourself, um, once that becomes cool, then it becomes, you know, dirty but then when you go back to you know the the root of what it is you know you're you're giving yourself you're letting somebody know like even you know 
social media has now become dirty, but at the advent of it, you know, it's about, you know, connecting with people, it's about talking, it's about sharing experiences and common experiences. So when I became socially conscious, I would say it was just me growing up as a kid. You know, my parents were always involved in charities. My was always just taught, you know, give what you can, talk to people, engage people. And even, you know, people forget that it's not just about, you know, the financial dollars or even, you know, myself, you know, bringing awareness through social media or through an interview, but even just, you know, spending time with somebody. Um, asking somebody, you know, how are you doing? What are you up to? How can I help? Um, these are the things that, you know, people do every day that they have to remember, you know, these are socially conscious things. You know, you can walk around the city or around your town with your head in your phone, not look up and have a great day yourself, but that's not, you know, being aware and socially conscious and even just giving up yourself. Um, so I feel that, you know, the generation that's coming up who have grown up with social media and are reading so much information and consuming so much information, there's a reason why, you know, they are so socially conscious is because they're engaging all the time, yeah. all the time. Um, so to look at something as dirty as just, you know, trying to engage and give and you know, to have the mindset of, okay, what can I do for somebody before me? Um, it's selfless and it's definitely leading to a new generation of people who are going to change the world. Yeah, and it must be really trippy for you, specifically with, I mean, I'm sure something that people always ask about with how you were like raised or how you grew up. Probably people always think about the extravagance if there was any and things like that. But I think what must be amazing about the way you, I imagine you were raised is the fact that you got to interact with so many people who are different from you on a daily basis because of different charities and organizations your parents mm -hmm. worked with. I mean, that's to me personally, on a personal level, I think that's such an important thing for a child. The fact that you probably day to day spent so much time around people who are different from you constantly. I mean, my parents, you know, my, my dad grew up poor. Like, he grew up at the is the poor and you know when he made it to the NBA a lot of people don't remember this I didn't even know this until uh, my dad told me uh, a couple months ago he said when I made it to the NBA the NBA finals was on tape delay Jesus you know the game where you know if any people are sports fanatics you know Magic Johnson played center started for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and got like 46 points and had this great game that wasn't on live TV. Um, and even my dad, you know, his largest contract playing, um, he retired in 1993, his largest contract playing was a million dollars. The minimum salary today in the NBA is $6.3 million. And you'll be seeing as free agency started, guys are getting $200 million contracts. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So it's a completely different era just in terms of financial. But that's not to say, you know, I didn't grow up, I grew up very privileged, and I grew up, you know, not having to want for anything. But at the same time, it was, as I said, my dad grew up poor, so interacting with some of his family members, or, you know, even my mom grew up middle class, so her family members, um, these were still interaction as you said that I had you know I I knew that when I go went home I wouldn't want for anything but at the same time when I would go and spend time with my aunt or spend time with my uncles my cousins you know it, it was a different I even remember you know 
my aunt always likes to tell me the story of you know she had two sons or has two sons and we went to McDonald's and I want an entire value meal. I wanted supersized. I wanted everything. And she goes, Well, no, you guys can share the fries and you know you can get a hamburger. And she told me that I was like so confused as to why I can't get this. Um, and it was just, you know, various situations like that. You know, I grew up on, you know, just traveling a lot and just learning different, not only different cultures in terms of black and white and religious um, affiliations, but, you know, social economical. Um, it was very cool growing up, and I feel that it's got me to a point of being very grounded um, and knowing, you know, treat people the same. Um, same people you meet on the way up, you meet the same people on the way down. Yeah, that's so crucial, and I love that you said that just now, because I feel personally for me, uh, that's a big correlation in the, in the sense that like you could have the belief that everyone is equal, but the actual application in everyday life, that's what it actually matters and when it actually is like weighed in when you think about it. Yeah, you know, I'm really curious. When would you say you became aware of music in your life? Like when was something, when was that, when did that become an importance for you? Music was definitely all around me um, growing up. My babysitter growing up, um, she listened to rock music. Uh, my mom, she really liked Motown Soul. My dad, he was getting into like Tupac and Biggie, yeah. um, Curtis Mayfield even. So it was, um, music was just always around me as a kid. I can remember just a distinct moment though, when I was um, maybe six or seven years old. Excuse me. We were in the car, the driveway of my um, parents' house, and my dad put on Stevie Wonder, Do I Do? And I remember listening to that song over and over and over again. And it's a nine minute song. <laughs> so I remember listening to it for about an hour, sitting in the driveway, just again, again. And I think that's when I realized that I wanted to do something in music. I wanted to be involved in this. Wow. That's incredible. And that carried over, obviously, into like your teenage years and your adulthood. I mean, it's, what do, you, do you think that pa initial passion for when you would play that song is something that carried over, over time? Definitely. I mean, the way that I... No, that's okay. No. Yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> the way that I um, definitely listen to music, I still, you know, I love a good bass line. I love a good group. And that, you know, really stems from, you know, Motown and those, you know, Stevie Wonder type records. Um, and I like music, you know, to evoke emotion. Um, I feel that when you, you know, feel something in music, whether it's sadness or whether it's happiness, you know, music should evoke an emotion, and that's when you know it's done. That's very true. One of my favorite things about music growing up, and it's definitely the thing that helped it be so prominent within my life, is that uh, I love the fact that you got to interact with so many different people here in a city like New York or in London where I grew up. But like, what's crazy is that like you listen to music, and at its core, it's storytelling. You're learning ex of experiences and emotions that you have no basis or context for, but within a song, it almost makes you feel like you can feel these things. Do you think that's also one of the things that struck a chord for you, the aspect of storytelling within songs? Yeah, definitely. Um... But I also like to point out, you know, when I when I write or even when 
you know, others, you know, write music. You know, it's not that you go into the studio with an idea of you want to write about X. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, it just has to flow from the beat that you hear, or there is inform in, um, information that just happens in, in the studio. Um, but then in a visual sense, um, like I really enjoyed, you know, producing the music videos um, that I've been involved in and, you know, even helping others, you know, with their music videos. I feel like that's where you can really say, okay, a piece of art is now done. What do I feel from it? Yeah. You know, that's where I feel that you can, you know, really say, okay, let's do this here, let's do this here. When I go into the studio in terms of music, it's still raw. It's still, wow. you know, what's going to happen. That's really great. How, uh, when did you start getting involved doing uh, music video production? That's really cool. Um, the first music video I produced was for actually myself. Um, shot that in 2012. Wow. Yeah, 2012. It was called um, Regret. And it's actually a song. And wrote some music video that we took um, from a song. Music video that is inspired around pretty much a all-out party fun night, um, but unfortunately, um, it deals with you know substance abuse and the fact that you know sometimes you know in these party scenes, uh, the guy next morning, the girl next morning might not wake up. Yeah. Wow. That that I mean, what an experience to to find a way to convey that visually. Like, that must have been... Because, you know, what gets me with experiences like that, especially in the context of filming, is that, like, so much work that goes into filming anything. And for a music video, there's so much pre-pro and there's so much things that change on set. I mean, to have that be at the core of the story, it must have been really interesting for you to make sure that stayed intact. Definitely. And, I mean, it was based on a true story, something that, you know, happened to me, happened to my friends, you know, one morning. And it's definitely something that you take, you know, you take experiences from your life and you play with them and you tweak them. And then you try to tell a story. You try to be as authentic as possible. I really try to let people into how I was feeling in that moment. Um, I have a video and song coming out um, soon called Love Me Silver. Video we shot in Los Angeles, and it's, it's heavy. It's a heavy video, um, but it's also a beautiful video because it's a that was what was happening in my life at that moment. That's actually a really great timing because that was actually going to be what I was going to ask you next, particularly about the song <laughs> because that song is like, you know, what really gets me about that song is that like it's one of those things where like it bops and it moves and you can like move to it, mm -hmm. but at the core there's still like very, as you said, it's very serious and personal subject matter going on with it. Um, there's definitely a lot of pain from that song, but it, the, the, then there's also, you know, a lot of a lot of uplift because it's like you're, you're getting through this moment. Um, you're getting over it, and the song actually, um, I love the original. The remix is actually being used for um, the music video, uh, but that original record, it's just it's beautiful now. When it was done, it just, it, it makes me feel. I'm curious about that specifically. Like, what was it like for you when you finished writing that? Like, do you remember like what that experience was like for you? I mean, to write the song in general, but to also get it to like, I hate the word, the phrase finish line, but to get it to the end, what was that like? It was more so just that, you know, 
the song itself was actually thought of um, with the co-write Lee Briard. Um, he wrote it about a relationship, and when I tweaked it, I, I was talking about you know my assault and about a relationship that I was in during the assault. Um, so it's really interesting how you know people's perspectives and you know different writings uh, can come together. And Lee was talking about an experience that he had that was very personal to him. And it was just the blending of us working together um, has now you know, brought this record and, and the remix, and you guys will see the video soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. I'm definitely going to ask you about more stuff, but I just kind of want to ask a bit more about this. I'm curious, like, how did that collaboration come about, and particularly the sense of Wolf Liar, and particularly the aspect that, like, I mean, we, we keep bringing up the fact that there's so many personal things being touched upon, and I guess for me as just a music fan and not a musician, I imagine two people in a room writing, talking about personal things, and almost thinking like, whoa, what's that like? But like, I wonder what it felt like for you to do that. It was a good thing that, you know, we were friends first, and, but I've been in situations with other writers or producers where, you know, these things come up. Um, even Anthony, um, Anthony uh, is one of the producers on the remix of the record. Um, I did not know him. We did not know each other, and he actually came up to me and told me his story of sexual assault, of how he was assaulted. And when he heard the record that me and Lee did, he wanted to remix the record, but but wouldn't tell me. Like, wouldn't really? tell me that he wanted to remix it. And then I finally asked him, like, would you want to do a version? He was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds? Well, so, it's almost like him biting his tongue. Literally. Um, so him sharing that with me and then us being able to talk about you know that experience in a way to you know tell both of our stories um through music that was interesting because you know we weren't tight um but it was also you know therapeutic because at the same time we're both artists yeah. and we're both men who have gone through this but we've now gotten to the other side of it had we both been probably going through it um, I don't know if we could have gotten to that clarity point of, okay, we can now talk about this record or talk about, you know, assault and talk about sexual violence in a way that is both therapeutic for us, healthy for us, and continuing healing for us. Yeah, and I, I don't want to speak for you, of course, but I would imagine a component of that as well was the fact that having someone who's gone through something similar to you, I imagine sometimes it must feel like you don't get enough, there's not enough opportunities to talk to someone who shared an experience like that. Definitely. Um, and you know, people, it's something that people don't understand. Um, and even in a sense that, you know, I feel that we as a culture, as a world, we have to be more sensitive to just trauma in general. Like when somebody is going through something, whether that's, you know, sexual assault, sexual violence, or even just a, a death, um, Trauma is something that'll last. It's something that, you know, you, that person has to deal with. And, you know, they might not, you know, want to get out of bed. They might not even do the laundry for a week. <laughs> but there's some, but, you know, you knew that person as they were before, and they'll get back. But we have to, you know, push people to heal the trauma, not push people to just, oh, you'll be all right, forget about it. No, exactly. And that, I definitely, I couldn't agree more with that. Because it's the type of thing where I think, something that I like to tell people personally, like friends or even colleagues, is that like, 
I don't need to understand what you're going through to respect it. And I, I don't want to sound like a martyr or anything, but I think a lot of people could go a long way interacting with people if they took that approach. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I just want to ask one more thing about music. Um, in regards to Love Me Sober, but music in a general sense when it comes to songwriting, because I love pop music. Like, I think pop music's great. There's, I love the history of it. I love the fact that it has so many different shades and colors. Yet, it's funny, when I hear a song like Love Me Sober, even I'm left surprised with the fact that a person, any person, could be so personal within a song. And it's weird because like, there's so many examples of great pop songs where people are being personal, but yet I still have that reaction. I'm sure a lot of people do too. I wonder for you as a songwriter, like, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it is that we as people, music fans, you're also a music fan, I imagine, what do you think it is that makes us surprised that people could be personal like that in general? had to take a wild guess at it because you don't hear it consistently um music um to me the options of music are so plentiful but the access to music is so limited and what i mean by that is on the radio or on spotify playlists or anywhere you're only getting the top charts just played over and over and over again so Yes, you can discover new music yourself, but you're not getting the opportunities really to do so in a way that used to be done. You know, there's so much music out there. You can put a song up, I can put a song up, and just, you know, have it live. Um, but it takes, you know, a machine to get behind you, or it takes, you know, somebody big in social media or something to actually get you now discover to get you the eyeballs, to get you the earlobes, to get it listened to, so to speak. Um, I just want, you know, I wish, you know, good music or, you know, people that, you know, undiscovered artists that are so talented that aren't getting, you know, discovered. I wish that, you know, people were getting elevated. I totally get that. Um, you know, uh, two years ago you went through your a traumatic experience in regards to sexual assault. Um, since last year, you've been open and candid about the experience and the after effects of it. And I don't want to ask about the assault, but people can Google that. Instead, I'd love for you to share of how your life has changed since then. Because one of the things that blows me away, just in regards to what you've been through, is the fact that you've been able to talk about it in general. I mean, that to me is something to be respected and it's quite mind-blowing. Well, I, I've gotten to a point now, and this is, this is recent, I mean, it's, it's June, so... Last, last month in May, I really got to a point where I had realized that I had let it go. I had not, not so much let it go, that's the wrong, that's the wrong word, but I had entered a point of forgiveness. I entered a point of reconciliation. I used to say, you know, I was so angry and would want to, you know, kill or punch my rapist in the face or whatever if I ever saw him. But now I've just reached the point where, you know, I, I've made it through and I'm here and I'm happy. Um, so I, I'm letting go of that hate. I'm letting go of that anger. Yes, I never want this to happen to me again. I want it to happen to anybody else. Yes, it, it, it completely took two years of my life and just rattled me. Um, I definitely feel like I lost two years of my life and I've been rebuilding, you know, that puzzle rebuilding, you know, even 
you know, business things like DJ gigs <laughs> or even, you know, personal things like, you know, just simple friendships that, you know, I lost and let, let go and just had, um, fell into, you know, bad habits um, and even fell into no habits of, no habits meaning wasn't getting out of bed, <laughs> wasn't doing the laundry. Um, but I've moved through it and I'm in a, the stage of just forgiveness of just, you know, letting things go and you know just having my uh, as we were talking about before you know we started the court having my 30th birthday um, just last week uh, last week in change and I imagine I was talking to one of my friends I'm like I imagined my 30th birthday it would have been you know five years ago two years ago I imagined it completely different than it is right now um, I spent my 30th with you know small group of friends and just small group of friends just a couple of days and it it really turned into a week-long celebration you know which commenced you know with New York Pride off actually being a celebration of my birthday as well uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I just pictured it you know just friends family everybody just all together in one room and you know maybe a surprise party whatever but the fact that you know a lot of the relationships and a lot of things have just, you know, fallen after my assault. And I really became, you know, internal. And now I'm having to regrow and rebuild. At first, in those moments, it was like, wow, you're by yourself. Um, how does that feel? And I realized, you know, I'm not by myself. I'm with me, you know. And I've learned to love me, and I've learned that, you know, you have to be your own advocate. You have to stand on your own two feet. Nobody was able to get me through my experience or through my assault but me. Um, and I feel like that's a lot of thing you'll hear from a lot of survivors and even talking in to a lot of survivors. It's, you know, eventually you gotta get up and do it yourself, do the work yourself. Um, I waited, you know, for my mom or for my doctor or for somebody, you know, fix me. But I had to fix myself and doing the work by yourself, you really turn inward. And I lose a, a lot of the relationships, um, lost a lot of relationships and consistent friendships and consistent things that I had going on. Um, but I forgive my rapist. I forgive you know, the people who even, you know, weren't there for me or were there for me or didn't know how to be there for me. It's just a forgiveness. And I feel good. That's, I mean, there's so much I could ask just in regards to that. But one thing, I mean, so much has stuck with me. But, like, I really do love the fact that you said that you had to almost, like, allow yourself, you had to get to that point within yourself. Because, I mean, my next question for you is going to be, because when you first started, you said that you were, you had a point where you're, Oh, forgiveness, yeah, forgiveness. And I was going to ask you what you would attribute that to, even though there's a myriad of things. But I guess the core thing is just being able to realize that, like, you can look back. Mm -hmm. Like, you can look back and realize that, like, time has passed and, like, you're still here. Still here. Time has passed. It's, it's really the act of forgiveness because I, I... The pressure... What's going on? When I say the pressure, it's the it's the pressure you put on yourself to you know get everything back in order. Um, 
even, you know, moving apartments, changing things like that, you know, changing doctors, excuse me, um, just moving around, just getting your life in order. And now that, you know, my life's in order, it's like, okay, I'm not angry anymore. You know, I feel that, you know, my rapist, I said, took two years of my life. And now I don't want him to take the rest of my life. That's power. That's so important. Like, honestly, that's so important. You know, one of the worst things anyone could do is read the comments. And uh, I saw your segment for Good Morning America a few days ago. And I found myself reading the comments almost like out of a thing of just kind of like, oh, I wonder what people are thinking. And obviously, no matter what thing you look at on the internet, it's always a mix. It's like maybe 20% great things and 80% just the dredges of society. Um, and there was a lot of the usual garbage one would imagine. I'm sure you've seen and heard it all, but I wonder, like, because we talked about empathy earlier, we talked about the importance of people being there for each other. I wonder, what do you think it is, if you just had to take a guess, what do you think it is that makes people react to other people's experiences with almost like a form of suspicion because that's the thing I would say that's the thing I saw permeating with all the negativity it was very interesting um, actually during Pride I was walking down the street and I got a message on Instagram from somebody who said what do you do to support survivors and I thought about it for a second and I was like well what do I do and you know, I had to, you know, snap out of it. My friends had to snap out of it. Like, you're freaking, you brought so much awareness to male sexual assault just by talking about it that you have no idea. And it always brings me back to, yeah, I, I don't. And I get at least 100 messages a week um, from people generally positive <laughs> who, you know, saying thank you or just want to talk. Um, about things and you know I came out about my assault before the Me Too movement caught fire and yeah good morning America they took a they took a big risk and they took a real step in the positive direction of allowing you know a black male gay to talk about sexual assault and assault and assault that happened to him on good morning America when people are eating their eggs and toast and, you know, kids are getting ready for school. Um, it was a big, definitely a big, you know, moment for television, for the movement. And I definitely don't understand why people, you know, push back on others' experiences. Um, even in this space, you know, as we're learning to navigate, you know, post me to, um, you know, even trying to put definitions on rape, sexual assault, um, sexual harassment, trying to literally put all these things in a box and say, okay, this is that, this is that, um, which eventually we're going to have to do because we're going to have to now write new laws and legislation and yeah, these things are going to have to be defined. But if a man or a woman says they've been assaulted, who are you to say, well, that was harassment? Or who are you to say, well, you've just gotten raped? Um, whatever your experience is, is your experience, and that's valid. Because um, nobody can take away what you feel, and nobody can feel what you feel. 
I feel that 100%. And whenever, like, these, um, not these, whenever um, somebody comes forward with their experiences, especially in the last, like, year or so, one of the things I always find myself very weirded out by, by other people, is that it's like you say, people try to define it for other people. But for me personally, I always think to myself that if a person is saying, I feel violated because blank, it doesn't matter what blank is, the operative that word there is violated, and you can't decide for anyone whether or not they felt violated. If they're expressing they did, then there's no question. There's nothing else to question, in my opinion. Yeah, there definitely isn't. I mean, it is what it is. If that's what they feel, that's what, that's what they feel. Yeah. I only have a couple more questions for you. Thanks for taking the time today for chatting. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Yeah. Was... Yeah. Uh, your song, Dealing With It, reflects on the aftermath of the experience you went through. And I wonder, was, I mean, normally people either only ask about the writing or the recording of a track, especially a track like that. But I wonder, not just what was it like for you to write that song, but what was it like to also release it into the world? And I mean, how different does releasing a song like that feel in contrast to like, any of the previous songs you released into the world? It was the first song that I sang on, and it was one of the first songs that it was actually produced in London. I oh. made it in London. Hey, hometown <laughs> So it just had a different feeling because it had the feeling of we're gonna be okay. It wasn't we're okay. Because we weren't there yet. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how much I tried to maybe convince myself that we were okay, we weren't there yet. But we were going to be. It was a step in the right direction. It was, okay, I'm going to release this song. No matter if anybody likes it, <laughs> I'm going to move forward. And that's what it really felt like. That was how it felt special that, okay, we're doing this. We're getting back in line, back in formation, so to speak, and we're moving forward. I love that, man. I don't want to trivialize, of course, anything that you've been through, but I think with what you just said there, there's so much power that could transcend even past your experience and correlate to even other people's experiences in the sense of just like, there's something very powerful of being able to say, I'm going to be okay. There's yeah. something very powerful about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before I let you go, you've got to do some pretty impressive things these last few months, and I read a lot about them, obviously, in preparation to talk to you. But one of the big things that stood out to me was you were being able, you gave a keynote speech at a Greenwich Village High School. And, I mean, it's funny, there's loads of things that you've done, but that one stuck out to me so much. And it's very poignant to me, because I think one of the many things that you would probably agree with, and people in general, is that the stresses we experience in our adulthood, no matter who we are, what our lives are, I feel like a lot of times we'll go through stress in life feeling like we weren't prepared for it in our childhoods. That throughout our childhoods, we didn't get taught how to deal with stress and how to deal with different experiences. Um, and especially when you're younger and you're a teenager, I'd love for you to share both what you told that room of teenagers and how that experience has personally affected you. Because I imagine experience like that can only stick well, with you. It was very interesting on that day because, you know, I keynoted and then there were um, some other speakers and it was mainly so about, you know, college preparation, about, you know, the anxiety of getting into school or what, where you're going to go. And I was coming to talk to them, you know, about, you know, my experience in sexual violence and, you know, dealing with that. But also on the day before, 
one of my good friends had just committed suicide. So I had to go into a room and then talk about the anxiety and about stress. And what I found myself doing was, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to preface this and say, you know, one of my friends just passed away yesterday. This is making me feel like this. It's okay to have those feelings, but what it's not going to be okay for me to do is to not come here and speak to you. We all still have to keep the motor going, and I had to express to them in that way. Um, it was an interesting experience because we were doing a lot of talking back and forth. You know, it wasn't just solely me, you know, just up on the lectern 30 minutes. It was, you know, then it turned into how are you doing? And asking the people in the audience, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, things like that. So it was beautiful in the sense that it was therapeutic for both sides. Um, and that's how I approached that speech. Wow. And just, I mean, yeah, before I let you go, I mean, do you remember what it was like after you did that? Or like, what, like what do you think it is that's, that's, that has stuck with you? After I did that, I realized, you know, there is a certain amount of preparation that goes into giving a speech, but when you are rattled, I felt that it was best for me to go off script. Um, it doesn't work for everybody, but that's what I felt, and it ended up working. Wow, well, Zeke, thanks for finding the time to chat. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank so, you. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> Flow in my veins, I love you in pieces. I love watching you go, I hate when you leave me.